morning. It's so nice to be with you this morning. Um, I was here, I think it was four years ago, three or four years ago, and that was a wonderful time coming, and I'm glad to be back and honored that Andrew would ask me. Um, I would have brought my three boys and my wife with me. My youngest, Grayson, just turned one a couple days ago, and so we had, we separated it into two parties. So last night was, before the Phillies game, we had... (laughs) We had my side of the family who's from the Philadelphia side, and then my wife's family is going to be today, this afternoon, who's from the Lancaster side. So we're going to split it up a little bit, and so it was a busy day, so I left them at home today, but we, they say hi. (laughs) I also bring you greetings from um, Pastor Bill Kelly at Upper Octorera and our church family. Um, I was telling several of them that I was coming here, and um, a couple of them have been here before, and one one of the families at our church, he told me he actually grew up here, um, the Goss family. So he actually grew up here, and years and years ago, he, he came here for years, and so he said to say hi. So let's um, read God's word together. We'll be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning um, excited and humbled to hear from your word in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that you will enlighten our minds and soften our hearts to hear what you have for us not just to hear it with our minds, but also to understand it and to apply it to our lives, Lord, as we encounter your glory and your majesty through this word. I just thank you for this opportunity we have to be together this morning to hear from you and be fed. In your name, amen. Have you ever been on a journey or an adventure that ended up being more involved than you first thought? I've been on a few. I have a fun example. About 15 years ago, I, was, I started a new job as a youth pastor at a church in Wyoming, Pennsylvania. It's a suburb of Reading. Not long after moving there, I learned about a really nice lake called Blue Marsh. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Blue Marsh. So I was excited for the event, to have an adventure so close to home, so I asked one of my housemates if they wanted to go for a quick trip around the lake. I figured it's a pretty small lake. We'll go around it. So we drive all the way to one of the, the only entrance I knew. We looked at it and said, yeah. I see everything there. We'll just go for a quick trip. It was later in a fall evening, so we hiked in and out of the wooded area. It's about, I would say about this time 15 years ago, about this time. So you can just think of when it starts getting a little bit darker sooner. So we were looking around the wooded area, admiring the fall leaves and the water so close by. We're watching boats travel by, people having fun. And we figured we'll be through this in a couple minutes, maybe an hour. So we hiked, and we hiked, and we hiked. And as we hiked, we started realizing that it might not be exactly just a mile around. 
And so as we did that, we started looking around, and we were, it was getting dark. And we're thinking, how are we going to get out of here? And so we would have to back out by the shore, back through the woods, back to the car. Like, we don't even know where we are right now. And so as that happened, we saw a kayaker come by. And thankfully, he was there because he, he said hi to us. Do you guys know where you're going? We said, we have absolutely no idea where we're going. <laughs> and I said, I said, is it right? This is a small lake, right? He's like, no, there's almost 24 miles around. <laughs> so we, we thanked our new friend, and we eventually made it back to our cars. It was dark, but we made it back to the car. So sometimes a journey or adventure was more, more involved than you might first think at first sight. Another example. I've been reading some J.R. Tolkien lately to catch up with the kids in my youth group. Um, I enjoyed watching The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but these kids are really into it. And so I wanted to come up to their level of greatness and know what I was talking about. And so I've been reading it, and I think there's an even a better story with this, thinking about an adventure that started that they might not have first thought. And I think, it's Bilbo, I think of Bilbo Baggins from The Hobbit. He's happy in the Shire, if you know the story eating first and second breakfast, relaxing with his friends, enjoying all the comforts of home, which the hobbits enjoy. Then Gandalf the wizard comes by and interrupts his perfect little easy fun life and asks him to go on an adventure. On the one hand, Bilbo doesn't want to leave his perfect, comfortable life he has in the Shire. But on the other hand, there's an adventure that's awaiting him. And he goes. He begins the journey with the dwarves and Gandalf, not aware of the danger to come. So I'm not going to ruin the ending for anybody who hasn't seen it, but we watched Bilbo Baggins start the journey without knowing really at all what was about to happen and then find himself being chased into a cave by Gollum and climbing up into a tree to escape wild wolves. That's probably not what he woke up thinking was going to happen. Sometimes a journey or adventure is more involved than you might think. So in our passage this morning in Mark, I see the disciples on a journey as well, a journey of learning and realizing that following Jesus is more than they first thought, and maybe even realizing that they really didn't know what they were signing up for when they were first called. So before we jump into our passage, I want to move back just to the paragraph before. Up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' disciples were obediently following Jesus and doing the work of ministry that he called them to. They followed him according to what he had all revealed to them so far, which was right, and according to what they were able to comprehend step by step. It's how God works with us, right? Step by step with us. The first eight chapters of Mark include the calling of the disciples, a lot of teaching, and a lot of miracles. The disciples have a good grasp of Jesus' words and his works so far. They have a good grasp of what he's taught so far. And then we see a turning point towards the end of Mark 8. Jesus asks a really important question. He says, who do people say that I am? They reply, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter chimes in, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And when we read that, that is the correct answer. That is who Jesus is. Peter understood that. But we're about to see that there's a gap in Peter and the other disciples' understanding of who Jesus is and what he's working to accomplish. It's a little bigger than they first thought. Jesus starts teaching about suffering, dying, and rising again three days later. And what does Peter do? 
Does Peter talk about how he knew that was coming and how he was going to stand right by Jesus? No, he doesn't. Peter actually, Peter actually rebukes Jesus. He says, how could you say this? Peter actually still believes that Jesus is the Christ. That's true, and he's right. And the triumph that would come along with that. But he didn't yet, yet understand that Jesus still had to suffer and die and rise again to win the victory over sin and death. Peter thought that all of the good stuff was coming sooner than later, and he didn't realize that Jesus should be talking the way he was. He didn't like it. Something didn't make sense to him. Then Jesus was not calling Peter. Jesus later said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was not calling Peter Satan, but he was calling out the person of Satan that was behind those words because those words were intended by Satan to short-circuit the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. He wanted a shortcut. Satan has always desired to trick or fool mankind by offering an easier way out. And think about Jesus, about Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus' words were strong to Peter. They were strong because Satan's intentions were way darker than what we could ever see on the surface. What's going on in the background and what Satan is up to is way darker and way uglier than we might first think. I'm seeing a closer look at that. My, me and the youth group on Wednesday nights for the last year and a couple months, I've been studying the book of Revelation. When I first started, I figured a chapter a week. But right now, in, I don't know, 60 weeks, we're only in chapter 13. Um, and as we do that, we're getting the, we're getting the curtain lifted and seeing the, what the world really is like. We're seeing Jesus being way more magnificent than we could even think, but we're also seeing evil way darker than we could imagine. And that's what I think we're seeing here, is that those words sounded harsh, get behind me, Satan, but what, what Satan was doing was way darker than Peter or the disciples might have thought. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, was bringing that to light for his disciples as he progressively revealed who Jesus, who he was to his disciples. Jesus goes on to teach what following him looks like. In Mark 8, 34, he sums it up well. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take, his, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is about to make a shift in his ministry. He's about to reveal another layer of who he is and what his mission is all about. And for this to really take root, he's going to lead his three disciples on a journey that will take them to deeper truths and make them real to them and show them the same things through the written words of God to us this morning. So if, if, as we think about our passage and about to dive into our part of Mark 8 this morning, I have a big idea that I mapped out. And this is what I'm saying for the big idea. The disciples who followed Jesus up the mountain and saw his transfiguration gained clarity of Jesus' ultimate mission to save sinners and what their role in his mission would be. And he was giving them mission clarity to make that happen. So we'll be looking at verse 2a first. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Here, Jesus is inviting his disciples to follow him on a journey. Six days. Six, six days after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And six days later, Jesus invites his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to accompany him and join him on this journey up a high mountain. Mountains were the setting for several important moments in Jesus' ministry. He prays on a mountain. He preaches on a mountain more than once. He performs miracles on a mountain. He's tempted on a mountain. 
He calls his disciples on a mountain, and he sends them on a mission on a mountain. The Pillar Commentary, one of my favorites, says this, like mountains elsewhere in scripture, the Mount of Transfiguration is a place where God and humanity encounter each other. Indeed, where God reveals himself to humanity. So I wonder what the disciples were thinking at this moment as they hiked with Jesus up this mountain. I can only speculate what they were talking about. So this is outside of scripture. Um, but, but I wonder what they were saying. Maybe they were thinking or saying, what, what's about to happen? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? Are we in trouble? Or maybe that's just my inner child coming out, thinking I'm in trouble, <laughs> projecting that out. But what do you think they might have talked about, right? Out of all the possible answers the disciples may have thought of for this question, I don't think they were ready for what was about to happen with the transfiguration. I think it was about to blow their minds. In verses uh, 2b to 6, Jesus is about to reveal to his disciples another layer of who he is. I'm going to read 2b to verse 6. And he was transformed before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. There on the mountain, and he was transfigured, coming from the Greek word metamorphose. That carries a root word of to change. He changed before them in a significant way. The pillar commentary again says this, in Mark's transfiguration narrative, metamorphosed does not signify a change in Jesus's nature, but rather an outward visible transformation of his appearance to accord with his nature. So as we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully man, his nature didn't change. He didn't become God. He already was God. But his, his appearance changed to be in step with who he actually was. And that was a huge leap for his disciples and his followers to see. It says, even his clothes changed to look that they, like they were bleached white. It was an amazing sight for them. The transfiguration story in Matthew and Luke also referred to how his face was shining as well, to get a little more clarity, which brings us back to the story in comparison with Moses, whose face was shining because of his encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Those who encounter the Father face to face like that, there's a, there's a glow about them because of who they were with. Um, in our adult Sunday school class, we just finished up a two-year study on Exodus. Another time, you think a study is going to take a year, and sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Um, but we saw that in Mount Sinai in our study just about a month ago. And then Moses and Elijah appear on the scene talking to Jesus as well. Any Jewish person would recognize Moses and Elijah because they were two of the greatest prophets or mouthpieces communicating God's message to the people in their time. God used them mightily, and the Jewish people, every, everyone in the Jewish community were familiar with them. And it's interesting here that they're not seen as equals with Jesus. They're there talking with him on a different level, but they're not equals with, with Jesus, but showing that even two of the most important figures in Israelite history were merely forerunners of the greatest prophet, Jesus, the one who would finally bring redemption to the world. They were forerunners. They were just talking about what would be coming later, and Jesus was finally fulfilling that 
and he was revealing to them what was going to happen step by step. It would have been too much, right, for them to tell them all at once what was going to happen. So Jesus progressively tells them what, who he is and what was going to happen. Every part of the story is full of significance and meaning as we see the purposes that God's working out. Uh, the passage then moves on to tell us that Peter wants to set up a tent for Jesus, Moses and Elijah. When we first read that, it seems a little strange and maybe even like, why would you say that? Um, where did that come from? <laughs> but he's thinking back to a time when God tabernacled among his people and promised that he would do that again. So really, for any Jew listening to that, it made a lot of sense. I want to set up a tent for you as you're going to be tabernacling among us. So Peter's idea to build tents is logical, but at the same time, it's a misunderstanding of what actually is happening and what Jesus is saying. But it makes a little bit more sense to us to read into that. Pillar commentary one more time. I love it. Um, Peter's proposal of tabernacles on the Mount of Transfiguration was fitting for a pious and knowledgeable Jew. What Peter must come to understand, however, is that God is providing his own tabernacle in which we will dwell. It was a different kind of tabernacle this time around. And their minds understood what they understood at the time. It didn't fit into their paradigm. But Jesus was stretching that for them to understand that he was going to tabernacle or he was actually tabernacling among them. Jesus came to dwell among his people. And, he said, and John says it wonderfully in chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and lived, tabernacled, for a while amongst us. So even though the disciples were already following Jesus as he performed signs and miracles and taught, they are now ready to understand more of what Jesus is doing and more of what their role is going to be moving forward. Because um, a lot of things are going to happen in Jesus' life in the near future. And he was going to be about to leave them and commission them in a, to continue the mission. So in verse 7 to 8, the Father calls on the disciples to listen to Jesus. I'm going to read those verses to you. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This message reminds us of God the Father's voice during Jesus' baptism. In the baptism, the message was directed to Jesus. You are my beloved son, as confirmation of his sonship. He already was. It was showing who he was again to the world. Here, it reveals his sonship to his disciples. The disciples get a first, a front row seat to what was happening. This is my beloved son. You listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Elijah and Moses were gone. They appeared. They disappeared. But Jesus was transfigured. Elijah and Moses were pointing the way to the actual one that the people had been waiting for the entire time. They thought there was another prophet to come, but Jesus was that better prophet. He was the greater Moses. He was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Fully God, fully man, the long-awaited redeemer and rescuer, and he had finally come, and they were seeing another layer of how he was going to do that. So what were his disciples supposed to hear in the midst of this dramatic, wonderful scene? Well, the disciples needed clarity for the question, who do you say that I am? They got that. The transfiguration showed them exactly who Jesus was. They understood that he was Christ, 
but they didn't understand all of the manifestations of that. Of course, there was more that you couldn't even put into words. The transfiguration showed them a lot, but there, of course we know from reading the entire New Testament there was a lot more to come. Um, but they, had, they did get more clarification in the middle of this. And even though Jesus would suffer and die, which was difficult for them to comprehend, it was always part of the plan. And a note, this was, this was a shift from expecting Jesus to immediately build his kingdom by taking it all back, all that the Jewish people had lost. This is a shift for the people. So I think it's worth recognizing that the Jewish people wanted to see the new kingdom come there in their lifetime and for them to have things back the way it was before the exiles. But Jesus had something larger in mind. This is the message of clarity that the disciples needed for all that was about to come. So what are we supposed to hear with that? As his people in 2022, what are we supposed to hear? And I believe that the message that the disciples heard at that time is the same exact message that we should be hearing this morning. We need to answer that same question. Who do you say that I am? Like the disciples, our vision of, of who Jesus is and what he's accomplishing and what our part in the mission is may be expanding in a passage like this. Um, the transfiguration gives us, we already knew about it, but as we read God's word, we know that it is living and active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So as we read, he is doing surgery on our hearts to show us the truth of who he is, expanding our vision of him. So I think back to this, the journeys from the beginning, my, my, my journey to Blue Marsh, Bilbo Baggins' journey that he had no idea what was to come. Maybe we didn't quite know what we were getting into when we first started our relationship with Jesus. But the greatness of God and his plans and his Holy Spirit living within us is moving us forward in that mission, part of that plan, in our knowledge of his glory. We now have the advantage of already knowing what happens in Jesus in his life and death and resurrection. Um, unlike the disciples, they're looking forward and waiting for it. We can look back and see what already happened. Second Corinthians, Paul says this is great in Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. He says, "And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." The expansive picture of Jesus as the Son of God gives us a bigger picture of Jesus. And he gives us confidence to listen to him and share him with the world. And that's one thing we can take from that, is as our vision of him becomes larger, our level of confidence and boldness, having the Holy Spirit living within us, gives us the boldness to live for him, even when it's not easy, to speak up for him, even when it's not easy. Even when our words that are true are not going to win us any popularity contest or give us any benefit that might, be, that might be coming to us. It gives us the boldness to do that because we see the glory of his face. So coming back to the big idea, the, the disciples who followed Jesus up the mountain and saw his transfiguration gained clarity of Jesus' ultimate mission to save sinners and what their role in this mission would be. And now we also get to behold the glory of the Lord, and it changes us as well. So I wrote down a couple notes as I thought of for a couple application points. And as I write these down, I fully expect the Holy Spirit, through his word, was already actively applying these things to your life. But I wrote, 
I wrote a couple down for my own study to give you a jumping off point. So first, I wrote, answer Jesus' call to follow him. In one sense, this is what takes place at our salvation. We repent and we follow him. Um, and this is my invitation to do to you if you don't know Jesus as your savior. In another sense, it's a call for committed followers to deepen our commitment to follow Jesus, to get a bigger vision of who he is and to recommit our lives to following him. Second, I want to challenge you to look to God's word to deepen your understanding of him and your relationship with him. Um, God gives us the privilege of revealing himself little by little to us. Um, I heard it said that our walk with him is a moment-by-moment moment walk with the Lord. As we walk with him through this journey of life, he is patient with us, he is merciful with us, and he is kind to us. Um, so let's take this opportunity, knowing that he's loving and caring and kind and merciful, to walk with him moment by moment, knowing that every day is not going to be perfect, and there's going to be times when we, we slip and we fall and we struggle with sin, but God wants us to walk with him and, and get to know him, and he sanctifies us through that process. And third, answer God's call to listen to Jesus. Jesus is not one of the prophets, but the prophet. He is the answer to our sin problem, and no amount of pragmatism will fix the world's problems of sin and the mess that it makes. Only Jesus can do that. Um, there's a lot of good ideas and a lot of good things we can implement into our lives, but nothing is going to change the world aside from the gospel and Jesus' power. And so this morning, as we heard those things, um, I look forward to myself and look forward to you thinking about what does the fact that Jesus transfig was transfigured before the disciples and what was recorded in his word, what does that mean for us? And how does that change the way you look at Jesus? And how does that look as you reflect him to a dark world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you once again for your word. I thank you that it is alive. And that as we read it, it is the only book um, that, you, that we know is totally true and also is living and active and gives us everything we need as believers to follow you. I just act as, as we are continue to be sanctified into your image, Lord, I pray that your word will continue to dwell in our minds and hearts and you will transform us into your image um, little by little, Lord. We just thank you for the work you've done in our life in the past and what you'll do for us in the future. In your name, amen.